We experienced a rare moment this week when something absolutely extraordinary broke through the news cycle and completely transcended all the typical commentary about the economy, the war in Ukraine, the surge of COVID-19, the January 6th hearings, the loss of reproductive rights, or the president's trip to Middle East. It was something so spectacular, so beautiful, so heavenly, so celestial that it stopped people in their tracks and transfixed the world. In fact, it was impossible for the major media outlets to ignore. Instead, many were forced to create room for it on the front page of their papers or squeeze segments into their regularly scheduled programming. It was like a gift from God, a message that came to us from in the form of images from deep space of the new Webb telescope, the most powerful instrument of its kind ever built. We received pictures of the stars and ancient galaxies from billions of years ago in the past, providing us with the clearest picture we've ever had of the emergence and the origin and the evolution of the universe. Looking upon them this week was nothing less than a spiritual experience. It was cosmic, extraterrestrial, revelatory, humbling. It was breathtaking. We have entered a new dawn of peering deep into the cosmos, of a kind of time travel, looking back millions of years into our past. The Webb telescope, now orbiting 100 million miles from the Earth, possesses a giant golden mirror, enabling us to see galaxies that were formed 13 billion years ago. An infrared technology that can penetrate through dust to reveal aspects of the universe we've never seen before. And spectrometers that can decipher molecules like water and carbon dioxide and methane gas on planets in galaxies we've never even looked at. Webb showed us a new image of Stevens Quintet, a group of four galaxies 290 million light years away locked in a cosmic dance of repeated close encounters with sparkling clusters of millions of young stars and regions of fresh starbirth, sweeping tails of gas and dust that is being pulled from several of the galaxies due to an, a gravitational interactions between them. It also revealed to us the Southern Ring Nebula, Vivid shells of gas and dust expelled into space by a dying star. And Carina Nebula, one of the most dazzling regions of space with giant mountainous clouds of dust and gas. This is the one that was on the cover of the New York Times that were formed. These, these clouds formed after the explosion of a giant star over 7,600 light years away, which has become the fertile ground for a satellite nursery. It is literally the birthplace of new stars. Amazing. I wanted to tell Mia this week that we should rename our church Carina Nebula because Myers Park is also the place where stars are born. I can see her rolling her eyes right now. Viewing these images from Webb makes us feel so small 
and insignificant, temporary, in comparison with the vastness of the depth of our universe. And it reinvigorates those old questions about humanity. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Are we alone? What's over that next mountain range and past the next galaxy that we may one day find if we search? It's overwhelming to know that human beings are made of stardust and that out of the death of a single star comes the birth of many more. The universe in all its vast multitude is inside each and every one of us and the logic of death and resurrection is written into the very fabric of the formation of the universe. In his book, A Universe from Nothing, physicist Lawrence Krauss writes, the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than the atoms in your right hand. He says it's really the most poetic thing I know about physics is that you are stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded because the elements of carbon and nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution and life weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars. And the only way that they could get into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. Krauss is an atheist, so he says this to conclude. Forget about Jesus. Stars died so that you could be here today. <laughs> I wonder what Paul would think about that. We know that Paul believed Jesus was a bit more consequential to the cosmos. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul said, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. However, the fact that the cosmos is within us, as Carl Sagan said, that we are made of stardust and that we are the way for the universe to know itself really puts a wild spin on how we understand and worship God as the author of the cosmos, as that creator of the universe who Paul told the Athenians in our text this morning gives life and breath to all things and made all of us so that we would search and grope and find God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Scholars tend to paint a rather romantic picture of Paul's time in Athens, debating in the synagogues and marketplaces, but we know he barely escaped Thessalonica and Berea within an inch of his life, only to leave his traveling companions Silas and Timothy at the coast of Macedonia and travel over 300 miles to Athens by himself, which would have taken days. Paul was alone for the whole time that he was in Athens and would not see Silas or Timothy again until he got to Corinth. And yet on the heels of nearly being lynched twice by angry mobs and escaping in secret without his friends to the birthplace of Western philosophy, Paul was undeterred in his mission to proclaim the good news. And the reason Paul didn't just wait for his friends, keeping his head down in Athens, was because, as Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us, Paul was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. 
The word here, distressed, is really irritated or provoked. Paul's irritation about the pantheon of Athenian idols provoked him to begin debating with Jews in the synagogue and later Epicurean and Stoic philosophers in the Agora. And while no angry mobs rose up in Athens to kill him during his time there, the reception that Paul received was still quite chilly. Paul was detained and taken to the Areopagus, which was not a location but the name of a council of elders who were the authorities responsible for regulating religion and philosophy in Athens. Contrary to the popular belief, Athens was not the bastion of open-mindedness, so many of us have come to believe from our Greek history classes. According to scholars of the period, Athens was severe in its treatment of religious deviation. We need only remember the story of Socrates, who was put on trial and sentenced to death by the same council 400 years before Paul to see a vivid picture of Athenian religious intolerance. In our story, Luke is trying to portray Paul as the new Socrates, who we commonly believe and have been told was accused of corrupting the minds of the youth. But that was really the secondary charge against Socrates. The primary charge against him was asabia, a Greek word for impiety, which was a religious offense against the gods. In ancient Greece, asabia was a criminal charge defined as the desecration and mockery of divine objects, irreverence towards state gods, and disrespect towards parents and dead ancestors. Socrates was charged with refusing to recognize the gods acknowledged by the state, importing strange divinities of his own, turning away from the state-supported Greek religion to worship private deities of his own device and corrupting the youth by teaching them to question the status quo. The charge of Asabia, the Athenian council, leveled against Socrates is remarkably similar to the charges that we read were leveled against Paul, disrupting the status quo, proclaiming foreign divinities, teaching strange new things. Paul was in far more danger in Athens than we often imagine, and unlike Socrates, he was an outsider, which means his fate would have been far worse than a cup of hemlock. Paul must have understood the precarious situation that he was in because the remarks he delivered before the Areopagus Council have not only become some of the most famous in history, but also probably saved Paul's life and possibly the future of the church. What is extraordinary about this story is what Paul did, not the city of Athens or its philosophers. As scholar Willie James Jennings remind us, too much of the history of interpretation of this text is dazzled by Hellenistic glamour, which has much to do with a long-standing European obsession with an idealized Greek culture. For centuries, Christians have wanted to get back to the Greeks and capture the supposed cultural genius of the modern West imagined intellectual ancestors. This European fetish, Jennings says, of an idealized Greek culture is profoundly anti-Jewish because it ignores the miracle that Luke is trying to perform here with Paul's words. Even though Paul was deeply irritated by all the idolatry around him in Athens, he did something absolutely stunning and marvelously productive with his distress, with his outrage. Instead of turning away from the idolaters and his captors, he turned toward them, reaching out to them to the point of touching 
unclean Gentiles who could not be more far removed from him and his world. What do you say to people who are radically outside yourself and radically different from you? What do you say to them? What do you say to those whose religions and rituals you have been trained for your entire life to loathe? Most of us would remain silent and say nothing at all. Or if we did speak, we might likely tell those religious authorities that they can go to hell. Or double down on our own convictions to let them know where we stand. Or perhaps employ logical arguments to convince them of the error of their ways. Some of us would tell them what they wanted to hear in order to appease them, to save our necks, to live, to die another day. But Paul did none of those things. Instead, he leaned into the power of the Spirit and opened his hands to the members of the council. His words were not aimed to create distance, but to draw them into the Spirit's tether, into the body of Jesus, into one spirit with the people of Israel. His words were not here a marketing strategy, a missionary ploy, or manipulation masquerading as some kind of apologetics. There was transformation happening here in Paul himself. His own distress over the Athenians' idolatry was shifted by the Spirit in a new direction, toward invitation, toward inclusion, toward welcome, toward a generous reciprocity with them. Somehow, Paul's disgust at the Athenians and their idolatry evolved into empathy and solidarity. And in a shocking twist, Paul proclaimed that God wanted to know the idolaters. God wanted these Gentiles in God's family. God desired them. Paul's speech here was driven by the irrepressible longing of God to embrace the wayward creatures of the world by any means necessary. The scholar Marcus Jenkins writes, this is Paul's version of the parable of the prodigal son. Paul's words here communicate divine pursuit. He refused to allow the ignorance of his captors or his own irritation about their idols to become a source of their condemnation. Instead, he allowed the Spirit to open up a new avenue for a divine embrace, an invitation into beloved community. And this is even more startling when you remember that Paul had just been hunted down in Thessalonica and Berea, lost his companions in a hasty evacuation, and was standing on trial before the greatest philosophers in the world all by himself. It would have been so easy for him to condemn their idolatry, but Paul didn't. Rather, he offered them an opening, a way through, a way in, through God's desire to welcome all people. We live at a time today in America when the faith that we love, the Jesus that we love, the Christianity that we love, the church we love, has been taken captive by an empire religion. An empire religion that goes by the name white Christian nationalism. We know white Christian nationalism is idolatry of the highest magnitude, a form of heresy and blasphemy that would make Emperor Constantine himself blush. It is the worship of the country 
over the creator. It is the worship of money over morality. It is the worship of tribe over truth. It is the worship of profit over people. It is a false religion masquerading as Christianity, and we know it's wrong. We know that it is idolatry. We know that it is distressing and irritating and disgusting and provoking. We feel like Paul in Athens. We know it's dangerous. We've seen how dangerous it is. It's destroying our faith. It's destroying our society. It's destroying our democracy. Adherents of this idolatry were even incited by a white nationalist commander-in-chief to form a mob like those that threatened Paul and his companions in Thessalonica and Berea and attack our capital in order to overthrow the government of the United States. And we have no idea what to do about this. We have no idea what to do about how to resist it, how to stop it. For some reason, we can only barely muster the courage to try to hold them accountable in congressional hearings. It's all we have. But then, as distressed as I am about it, I saw this testimony this week. I'm not sure if you missed it. The testimony of two men who participated in the insurrection at the Capitol. Stephen Ayers and Jason Van Tattenhoff. And as I listened to their testimony, I wondered, have we lost touch with the spirit that animated Paul? Have we lost touch with the spirit that infused his remarks with openness and invitation? The testimony of Stephen Ayers, Jason Van Tattenhoff, it was stunning because it proves that people can change. Right before our eyes, even white nationalists can change. Oath keepers, proud boys can be transformed. People can be moved from their addiction to this false whiteness, to become faithful witnesses who tell the truth before the entire country, before Congress. People who participated in a mob insurrection can change and come to regret their behavior. They can come to repent. They can come to even discover how the political, religious, and racial ideology that they were trapped in was actually hurting them as well. Did you see it this week? It was nothing less than a miracle. You might not think it was that big of a deal, but perhaps we've lost the ability to believe in miracles, to receive miracles, or to believe that people trapped in evil ideologies and systems of power can be transformed. One of my favorite science fiction writers, Ursula Le Guin, once said, we live in capitalism and its power seems inescapable. But so did the divine right of kings. Any human power, she says, can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. Do you believe it? The human species is only six million years old. The universe is 13 billion. Maybe we need to take a longer view. The question is, do we have the imagination to craft and create a picture of another form of life, another society where there are no white Christian nationalists, only humans, only people living in love and harmony with each other? Do we have the courage to try and speak that new world into existence? 
Do we have the courage to conjure Paul's words of openness, that bidding, that call, that invitation to stand on common ground? Perhaps Paul remembered as he stood there before the Areopagus that he was once named Saul, that he was once a violent terrorist persecuting the church, that he was once killing Christians, that he was knocked down and had his entire life turn around. And if the Spirit could do that to him, maybe he thought, as awful as he once was, then maybe the Spirit could do it to the Athenians as well. I want to be clear here as a moment. Paul didn't stick around to try to have an open conversation with the angry mob in Thessalonica or Berea, did he? No, Paul didn't try to stand before the mob and convince them that they were all one humanity. You can't reason with a mob. You can't relate to or empathize with people who are intent on causing you violence. You can't speak truth to people trying to kill you. You can't preach the gospel to a mob and you can't convert a mob. Paul reminds us that you can only do two things with a mob. Run away and escape with your life, kick the dust off your feet and move on to the next town, and leave them to the authorities to deal with them. There are some things that are simply beyond our responsibility that only God can handle, that only God can stop, that only God can redeem if God so chooses. This is why when a lot, of, a lot of people ask, Ben, what do we do about a mob of white nationalists? If you're asking how do we talk to them, the answer is we don't. If you're asking how do we change their minds, the answer is we don't. If they're already in a mob, there's nothing we can do. But if you're asking what do we do about them, the answer is to hold them accountable by telling the truth about what they're doing, bringing the nefarious activities into the light, prosecuting their crimes, working hard to prevent others from joining their ranks. We cannot waste our time shaking our heads and wringing our hands over people who've already chosen violence. Paul ran from them. The disciples ran from them. But that's not who Paul was talking to in Athens. And we must be clear to make this distinction. Like Socrates, Paul and his companions, we too are called to speak to Athens. Called to, yes, turn the world upside down, to disrupt the world, to practice asabia and impiety toward the gods and idols of our modern-day Athens, the gods of American exceptionalism. We are called to disrupt what Dr. King called the three evils of materialism, militarism, and racism, or capitalism, war, and whiteness, to disrupt what Bell Hooks called the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. Whatever you want to call it, we're called to disrupt it. We're called to do exactly what Socrates and Paul we're charged with to desecrate and mock false divine objects, to practice irreverence toward the gods of the state, to refuse to recognize the idols of an, any particular nation, and to turn away from any state-supported religion, and only worship the God who has made the world and everything in it, all those galaxies and stars, who does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is served by human hands, who made all the nations of the earth, not just America, all, made them all so that they would search for God and grope for God. God, the God in whom we live and move and have our being, who calls us as her offspring, her beloved children. We are called to corrupt the young, yes, by teaching them to engage in critical thinking, to question the status quo, and challenge unjust policies and systems. And, and here's the big and, and, and we're also called to invite the Athenians, to invite them in to invite them to join us at the table of the beloved community, 
established by the creator of the universe. We're called, yes, to disrupt the world and welcome everyone in. How do we do it? It's hard. We're called to practice asabia and impiety toward all the idols of our society while remembering that every human being is made of the same stardust that has been here for 13 billion years. We're called to turn the world upside down and acknowledge that everyone, even those who we disagree with, lives and moves and has their being inside the same God who built the universe by exploding stars. We're called to stand with one hand out firmly protesting our culture of death and one hand open, inviting anyone and everyone, no matter who they are and what they've done in the past, to join our movement of resistance by telling them that they are stardust, beautiful, beloved, made in the image of God. We are people of Asabia and agape, not one or the other, but both, love and protest. What do we say to those who are radically outside ourselves, outside our theological vision? What do we say to those who are wholly different from us? What do we say to those whose religion and rituals we have been trained to loathe as idolatry? Well, we say what Paul said. We say the creator of the universe, the one who made Stephen's quintet, who formed all the galaxies, who gave birth to the stars and the space dust of the southern ring of the Carina Nebula billions and billions of years ago. That God wants you, wants to know you, wants to be with you. The creator of the universe is looking for you and searching for you and longing for you and desiring you and yearning for you like the prodigal father waiting, looking out the window for his son, hoping that you will look and search and grope and find her like a long-lost mother. The creator of the universe and all the galaxies and the stars does not want to be an unknown God placed on an altar in Athens, worshipped as one among many of the idols of the empire. No, she wants to know you, to love you, to embrace you, to be in relationship with you, to join her in disrupting the systems of violence and hatred, turning the world right side up again for love and truth. And being in a relationship with that God, the creator of the universe, is far more spectacular than any picture or idol, any nation or race, any philosophy or religion, being in that relationship is breathtaking. Amen.